Acts chapter 20 begins by saying, After the uproar ceased. So <laughs> the uproar is over. That sounds like a prophecy to me. I can't wait till the uproar is over. It feels like we live in the middle of an uproar. But you remember where we are. We're here in Ephesus. There with Paul. He's been there three years now in Ephesus. And uh, uproar started. Great as Diana, the Ephesians, the whole thing. And then the, the Romans stepped forward and put that down and, and caused it to cease. The crowds dispersed. Paul doesn't leave Ephesus because he's driven out. Uh, he, in his own heart, is going to tell us that he wants to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. So he's moved in his heart to move on from there. And it says, and after the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples, interesting, and embraced them. And he departed to go into Macedonia. So he leaves Ephesus. It says there that the brethren came and they embraced one another. It's very interesting because over towards the end of the chapter, he's going to meet with the elders from Miletus. And it says, they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. So here, at this point, he's leaving. But when he comes back, they're going to have a sense this is, this is the last time. So here he leaves Ephesus. It says they embrace one another. It's emotional. He's been there for three years. And he departed to go into Macedonia. Now, Macedonia, you remember, is up here. Macedonia is uh, no doubt he's going to visit Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, the churches up there that he planted. He's going to spend time there. And it's at this time he departed to go into Macedonia when he's going to write Second Corinthians. Remember, he had written a letter to the Corinthians that disappeared. We never found it. So as he writes First Corinthians, it's really Second Corinthians, and he's writing Second Corinthians, really Third Corinthians. We know it as First and Second Corinthians. But it's so amazing, at least to me, and, I, and I've got the mic so you hear what amazes me. Um, when he writes Second Corinthians, it's at this point on the third missionary journey in his travels at that point, he, he says, he, he's criticizing others who claim to be ministers, who are trying to force their way on the Corinthian congregation. He says, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more, in labors more abundantly, in stripes above measure, in prisons, plural, more frequent, in deaths, at the point of death, often, of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. We saw that at Lystra. Three, um, thrice I suffered shipwreck. This is before the shipwreck in the end of the book of Acts. Three times before that, he said, I suffered uh, shipwreck. A night and a day have I been in the deep, day and a half floating in the ocean. In journeyings often in perils of waters and perils of robbers and perils of my own countrymen, the Jews hounded him, in perils by the heathen, the unbelievers, the Gentiles, and perils of the city and in the wilderness, perils by sea, perils amongst false brethren, in weariness and painfulness and in watchings often, in hunger and in thirst, in fastings often, in cold and in nakedness, Besides those things that are without, and that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. So as he heads now to Macedonia, and he gets up there, he's going to write this letter of Second Corinthians that we have. But you think as you read through Second Corinthians, everything that he's been through that's not, Luke doesn't record it for us in Second Corinthians. If Paul hadn't spoken that section in Corinthians, we'd have never known some of these things that he had gone through. So he goes now back 
to Macedonia, where he's going to go to Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, and then down to Corinth. He calls it Greece. He's going to get on the Corinth. And he's collecting an offering for the church at Jerusalem, where he's been, and they're suffering. There's been a drought and a famine Early on, those brethren in Jerusalem had said they had all things in common. People who had things sold them and gave them to the less fortunate because they were expecting Jesus to come at any day. And uh, he didn't. It left a need there. But God, knowing, is using that now to weave together the Gentile and the Jewish church, which is almost unthinkable to the Jews in Jerusalem at first because they almost saw themselves as another sect of Judaism. It says, when he had gone over those parts, this was pretty fast, and had given them much exhortation, he came then into Greece. Now, Greece is all the way down Corinth, and this whole area uh, where Corinth is is known as Greece, this whole area. So no doubt it's to Corinth. He comes down there and... Uh, he winters there, and when he's in Corinth, he writes the book of Galatians. And as he's there in Corinth, it says there abode three months he was there. And when the Jews laid wait for him, we don't we know much about that. He finds out, again, there's some kind of a scheme, no doubt, to get their hands on him, kill him. As the Jews laid wait for him, as he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. So as he's here in Corinth, and he's going to sail down to Syria to get back to Antioch, no doubt, um, he finds out from this area all the way down, he finds out, Syria, Antioch, he finds out that there's a, some type of a scheme to kill him. So then he decides to go back Macedonia overland this way up here. And then he comes over, we're going to see, comes over to Troas. So instead of sailing down, he goes over, overland up to here. And then we'll see him come over to Troas. So he decided to go that way. This is the spring probably of 58 when he's in Corinth. He writes Romans when he's there. Um, tells us in Romans 16, it says there's a woman named Phoebe who's a diaconess. It seems like she's a deaconess. And she carries the book of Romans to the church in Roman from Centuria. It tells us that in Romans chapter 16.1. So we're really starting by the end of this third missionary journey to encounter some of Paul's co-laborers. It says, and there accompanied him, look in verse 4, into Asia, which is back the area of Turkey, so Peter of Berea, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, Timotheus, who we all know, Timothy, and of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus, these going before tarried, now look, for us at Troas. So Luke's back in the picture again. Now he's using personal pronouns again. We, in verse 6, they're waiting for us at Troas, so Paul has these seven other people traveling with him. No doubt they're representative from these church areas here taking the offering. We're going to find out their names. Go with him to Jerusalem. So the offering's coming from Asia. It's the area of Ephesus, that area from Thessalonica. It says from the area of Derby, which again is up in the area of Galatia, um, Asia, which is just a broad area. Probably Tychicus and Trophimus are from Ephesus as well. So this group of men now traveling with Paul. We don't know anything about Sopater. There's his name. Uh, he's a Berea. That's what we know. Of the Thessalonians, it tells us there's Aristarchus and Secundus. We don't know really anything about Secundus. Uh, Aristarchus, if you look over in the chapter before this, chapter 19, verse 29, 
It tells us there that the whole city was filled with confusion. They're in this uproar. And it says, having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. So Aristarchus is at least well known enough as one of Paul's companions and co-laborers that the unbelieving people in Ephesus recognize that. So they take him then, it says, into the theater. It tells us in chapter 27, I'll turn there, verse 2, I'll read verse 1. This is Paul's journey to Rome. It says, And when it was determined that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners unto one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustus band. And entering into a ship of Adramitium, we launched, meaning to sail by the coasts of Asia, one Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, being with us. So Luke tells us when we made the journey to go to Rome, it was Luke and Aristarchus uh, that were with Paul. You know, some people ask, you know, how could they, Paul's going as a prisoner? How they, well, he's going as a Roman citizen, and the Romans were very serious about that. So no doubt he, Luke was his physician, Aristarchus was his fellow laborer, and the Romans allowed, they believed in order, those two men to accompany Paul there to Rome. We have in Colossians, and I'll turn there, you don't have to turn there, Colossians chapter 4, it says there in verse 10, And Aristarchus, and this is written from the prison in Rome, now, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you. So scholars are wondering if when he comes to Rome with Paul, and Paul's put in prison, he's going to be released again, and, and some surmise he goes to Spain, but this is his first imprisonment in Rome, that Aristarchus was also under suspicion because of his relationship with Paul. And there are some scholars that feel that Aristarchus was at least temporarily put in bonds as well. Paul says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, Colossians 4, saluteth you, and Marcus, sister son to Barnabas, touching whom you receive commandment. If he comes to you, Marcus, receive him. So that rift was healed. And then interesting in Philemon, it says this. Uh, it says, Marcus, now he's signing off as he's written to Philemon, Marcus, Aristarchus, there he is again, Demas, Lucas, my fellow laborers, he's with Luke and, um, and Marcus and Demas, who of course is going to leave Paul. Um, Aristarchus is there again. So it seems like he's there with Paul uh, for years after this. Uh, it doesn't tell us that he's a pastor but he certainly seems to be faithful in his coming alongside of Paul. And you, you imagine the, the, how momentous this is to work next to Paul the Apostle for a number of years, traveling, listening to his teaching, serving, you know, going to the churches and speaking on Paul's behalf to let them know what's going on. So this remarkable man of Thessalonica, no doubt one of his converts from when he was there, and Secundus, then it tells us Gaius of Derby. Now, this is not Gaius from over, if you look back again in chapter 19, verse 29, where we were, just were, it says, the whole city was filled with confusion, and having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia. So that's not this Gaius. <clears throat> this Gaius here, this guy Gaius here, it says, is of Derby. Now look, Gaius was one of the most common names in this Roman culture at this time. It was kind of like John Doe. So it's hard to tie any of the Gaiuses together. The one-third John doesn't seem to fit. This is a Gaius, it says here, of Derby and Timotheus, Lystra, from that area in Galatia. So 
Timothy were aware of. Gaius, we hear this one shot here given to us. Of, and, and then of Asia, interesting, it tells us there's Tychicus and Trophimus. Now, Trophimus, we have him in chapter 21. I'll turn there. Um, verse 29, when Paul goes to Jerusalem and the riot begins and he's taken into custody and so forth, it says in verse 29, for they had seen before with him in the city Trophimus, an Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. So Trophimus is a Gentile, and they're going to accuse Paul of bringing a Gentile into the temple. That's how the whole riot starts, and Paul ends up in custody, and then in, in prison in Caesarea for two years, or in custody, and then finally to Rome. So Trophimus must feel terrible. You know, he's all of a sudden, he's getting blamed, and it doesn't tell us that was true. There were Jews that followed him through the Roman Empire, and then they're back in Jerusalem for Pentecost at the feast, and they're just aggravated with Paul, and they're looking for something to accuse him of, and they accuse him of bringing a Gentile into the precincts. And then in Second uh, Timothy again, let me find it. In Second Timothy, um, Paul is writing there to Priscilla and Aquila, the household of Anisiphorus. He says, Erastus abode at Corinth. Listen, but Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. So the last thing we hear of Trophimus is Paul has to move on, leave him at Miletum, and he says he's ill, he's sick. We don't get a report after that. Look, guys, interesting thing about that is we have a lot of wacky people in the church that claim to have a gift of healing and do a lot of strange things. None of them healed more people than Paul the Apostle. I guarantee you that. And Paul leaves him sick. It was never Paul who healed anybody. It was Jesus Christ who healed through Paul. But Paul didn't have a healing gift just to wield like a sword whenever he wanted to use it. Paul didn't use his spiritual gifts unless he was prompted by the Spirit. They were gifts of the Holy Spirit. So he moves on, and he leaves Trophimus there sick at Miletum. Interesting, that's the last thing that we hear in the Scripture um, of this man. And then Tychicus here. I want to I look at him. He gets a lot more print than the rest of these guys um, in Ephesians. It tells us this, it says, but that you also may know my affairs and how I'm doing, Tychicus, he calls him this, a beloved brother, the word brother there is of the same womb, and a faithful minister, diakonos, a servant in the Lord, shall make known to you all things, whom I have sent unto you, for the same purpose that you might know our affairs and that you might comfort yourselves. So Tychicus carries the epistle to the Ephesians, the epistle to the Colossians, and he carries the letter of Philemon to Onesiphorus. So he's an interesting, he's an interesting, you know, comrade of Paul the Apostle, in chapter 4 of Colossians, it says, All my state, what's going on with me, Tychicus will declare to you, who is again a beloved brother, a faithful minister, Diaconus again, and he says, and a fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent unto you, the Colossians, for the same purpose that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts, he says, I've sent him with Onesipus, Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, this runaway slave, who is one of you, and they shall make known unto you all the things which are done here. So again, Tychicus playing a major role, bringing those letters, and evidently he brings then 
um, Onesiphorus to Philemon and beseeches him on Paul's behalf with the letter of Philemon to receive him back again. We have him in, in 2 Timothy, again, chapter 4, verse 12, if you remember. It says, you know, everybody's left me. He's writing to Timothy. He wants him to come. He says, Luke alone is with me. And he says, and Tychicus have I sent to Ephesus, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. So as an emissary, he sent him then to Ephesus. And then in Titus, it says there, as he's wrapping the letter up, he says, when I shall send Artemis unto thee, or Tychicus, be diligent to come unto me to Nicopolis, for I have determined to winter there. So Tychicus, Paul, you know, he, he, he told Titus what a difficult ministry it was with the Cretans. They were tough. It was difficult. But this man Tychicus, Paul trusts him to take the pastorate there so that Titus can come to him. So remarkable guy, uh, funny name. Don't tease him about it when you meet him. But we're going to see him soon. And he's one of the seven, you know, emissaries from the Gentile churches bringing this offering to Jerusalem. That may have been one of the reasons why the Jews wanted to get hold of Paul. They may have known that he had this offering to bring to the Jerusalem church to help weave together the, the Jews and the Gentiles. So these men then traveling, carrying this offering to bring to Jerusalem. Verse 5 says, These going before tarried for us at Troas, because Paul went overland. So it seems they went before them um, to Troas, and it says, they going before us, they tarried at Troas, Dr. Luke's back in the picture, and we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, so you're right after Passover there, and came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. So it tells us now that they came from Philippi down to Troas, and it says it took them five days to come from Philippi to Troas. You remember on the way over, when the man from Macedonia called them, it took two days. It says it was a straight wind. Very unusual. God pushed aside all of, because normally they'd have to track back and forth to make it. It was a straight wind, and they came to Philippi in two days, because God wanted to get them there so they would meet the man from Macedonia. Evidently, his name was Lydia, down by the, the stream when they had the service there. But on the way back, it takes them five days to make the same trip. And no doubt, those five days, God slows the ship down. So there's fellowship. They're talking. You can imagine Luke again hooked up with Paul, the conversations that took place and so forth. It says that then we came and we, with all these other men at that point in time, sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And we came with them unto Troas in five days, about 150 miles in that journey, where we abode seven days. So he comes to the area of Troas. You guys, on the, on the first missionary journey on the way out, um, he, he was there. So now, oh, the second missionary journey, I'm sorry. So now Troas is where they are. For seven days, they're there in Troas. And very interesting description of the church there for us. Um, Paul, again, in Second Timothy, when he's signing off, he says, the cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, he says to Timothy, when thou comest, bring it with thee, and the books, and especially the parchments. So the house of Carpus was probably where the fellowship was in Troas, and Paul had left some parchments there, had left a cloak there. 
He's in the Mamertine dungeon in Rome. He's cold. He asks them, you know, bring my Bible and uh, bring my, my coat will you, when, you, when you come. So uh, interesting relationship with the believers here in Troas. And it says this in verse 7, And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, the next day. And he continued in his speech till midnight. So Paul, they break bread. We're going to assume that's not breakfast. If that was breakfast, Paul preached from breakfast to, to midnight. This is Roman time now. This is not Jewish time, sundown to sundown. We're going to assume that they broke bread together at dinner. They would gather, they would break bread. Any of them at work during the day weren't able to be there. It seems like Paul would then gather them in the evening, break bread, take communion together. And then it says he speaks to them until midnight. This is Roman time now, till midnight. Imagine that if we met for dinner before church tonight, five, six o'clock, ate together. I got you in here. until midnight, you know. <laughs> this is on the first day of the week, Sunday, not Saturday. The church didn't keep Sabbath. First um, Corinthians chapter 16, 11 also says they met on the first day of the week. That's when the offering should be gathered and so forth. They meet here on the first day of the week, Sabbath. And, you know, people who, who talk about that is incredibly complex. If you're going to be a Sabbath keeper, first of all, you need to work six days. It says in the Ten Commandments, you know, thou shalt work six days and on the seventh day thou shalt rest. So don't tell me you're a Sabbath keeper unless you're working six days a week. And then it says every Seven years, coming in the seventh year, after six years of working your business, your land, everything, you have to let it rest in the seventh year and do nothing. And then every 50 years, it was the year of Jubilee, where you let the fields go again. Keeping Sabbath was not a simple thing. And by the time of Paul, the, the Pharisees, who kind of were the Orthodox guys, that they were kind of what we were, but this is, if Christ doesn't come in a couple hundred years, we'll all be Pharisees, trust me. <clears throat> he, he, they had said there were 39 different ways to break the Sabbath and 39 different ways to do each one of those. It just they made it so complicated. That's why it's wonderful to be in John on Sunday because Jesus is just laying these guys out. He's telling them they don't know the word of God. They're disobeying Moses. You know, and nobody had ever said that to them. But they had made the Sabbath a burden instead of a rest. So here the church meets on the resurrection day. On the first day of the week, it says they're there. When they gathered, the disciples came together to break bread. They had dinner and then communion. And then Paul preached unto them. He's ready to depart the next day. He knows that only bonds and afflictions are waiting him. He's not expecting to see the church in Troas again. So he speaks to them till midnight. Now, I would hope if uh, we came together tonight and I was saying, this is the last time I'm going to see you guys. So the last time I'm going to look in your face. I'm going to leave from here. I'm going to end up in prison. There's bonds and afflictions that await me. I hope you'd give me more than an hour. <laughs> you're probably thinking at the rate you're going, no thanks, we need to get out of here. <laughs> so here, he preaches with them until midnight. And there were many lights in the upper room. Now these are not neon lights. These are not, you know, th these are candles and oil lamps and so forth. There were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. We're going to find out it's a third floor. They're jammed together. Most of them probably worked that day. I'm sure they're drowsy. They're gathered together, and there are many lights there. And they're sat in a window. Now, these are not Anderson windows. There was no glass or anything. It was just... You know, it was just the perch where, where this young man was able to get himself a seat. 
there sat in the window a certain young man named Eutychus. Eutychus means fortunate, and man was he. Uh, It says, being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and he fell out the window. He fell down from the third from the third floor and he was taken up dead. You know, so um, here's Paul and he's talking in somebody else's sleep. Some of us talk in our sleep. Paul's talking in somebody else's sleep, you know, and he's going probably if I preached at midnight tonight, some of you would be doing that. And I see it on Sunday. Um, I'm not offend. I'm not offended. Uh, if Paul the apostle could put a young man to sleep, you know, I, I don't mind when I see some of you drowsy on Sunday. The funny thing is, you know, some of you are more regular than others. I try not to look at you a whole lot. But the funny thing is to see somebody going like this, and then they kind of come back again, you know. And then and some of you being deceitful. We'll do the sleep thing, and then you come back and shake your head like you're listening the whole time. (laughs) You have no idea (laughs) what was being said. So Eutychus is the first of a long line of Christians who love to sleep in church, evidently. And, you know, because there's all kinds of sermons, you know, you better not sleep in church, you might die, or sermons for pastors about preaching too long, you're killing people, you know. Uh, That's not the picture here. That's not what's trying to come across. Uh, but Paul is speaking, it's, he goes on for a long time, and then it says this young man, and it seems to indicate he could be a teenager, young man, he fell asleep into a deep sleep, Paul preaching, a deep sleep, and as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down, you see him now, he's gone with sleep, and he fell down from the third story. You could hear the thud. I'm sure as he went out, did he go, ah, and realize he has fallen. The whole Bible study stopped. Everybody went, ah. If his parents were there, you know they're running down. They're freaking out. There's a thud. He falls down from the third story. Luke says he was taken up dead. Luke's writing. This is Dr. Luke. He doesn't say it was kind of like he was dead or he was as dead. He said he was dead dead. This young man was dead. Necros. This is the doctor giving us the report. He was dead. You come down third story on a stone walkway, you don't survive. One of my good friends in ministry up near Rochester, they said they were pulling their driveway once and their four-year-old was standing up in the window and saw them coming and was banging on the screen and the screen fell out and they said he fell out the second story window, did a complete turn in the air and landed on his back in the front lawn. And, and he said, we, we got him up. We went to emergency. He was fine. There was nothing wrong, nothing fractured, nothing broken. Uh, tough kid. So Eutychus goes three stories down, but he falls, no doubt, on a stone street or walkway that was there. And it, Luke says he was dead. And Paul went down and fell on him. Not CPR, please. He fell on him embracing him, and said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. You know, we have this in First Kings chapter 17, where Elijah is staying with the widow of Zarephath, and her son dies, and she says to Elijah, What is this? This is the God you're bringing to mind? This is that kind of trouble you bring? And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? And it says, Elijah stretched himself upon the child three times, and he cried unto the Lord and said, Lord, my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. Now, the amazing thing about that is there's no other record anywhere in Scripture that anybody had ever been raised from the dead before. So when Elijah's asking that, the measure of faith he has is incredible. 
He's asking for something we have no record that anybody's ever seen before, has, ever, has never taken place. Interesting, by the way, it says that he prayed and said, Lord, let his soul come into him again, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And it says the Lord answered, and his soul came into him again. So people sometime in the church, parts of the church, do this whole thing with what they call soul sleep. That you die and your soul stays in your body in the ground and it sleeps until the resurrection. That sounds like a real bummer to me. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He said, I had rather depart and be with Christ than to be here. So it tells us clearly that Elijah said, Lord, let his soul come into him again. And he threw himself on the child and it says his soul came into him again. Paul throws himself here on this child. Um, then we have this family in um, the story of, of Elisha, the, the disciple of Elijah. And this child died and it says he went up and laid upon the child put his mouth upon his mouth and his eyes upon his eyes and his hands upon his hands. And he stretched himself upon the child and the flesh of the child waxed warm. And then he came back to life again. He, 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 so Paul, for some reason, I don't know how much of that is in his heart, but it says he throws himself here on the child and he prays. And then he says, trouble not yourselves his life, evidently his soul, his suki, his soul came back into him. When he therefore was come up again, I mean, Paul's determined. He just goes back to the Bible study. Let him alone. He's okay. Let's go back up. When he was, <laughs> when he, when he therefore was come back up again and had broken bread and eaten again, then he talked a long while. I thought he had already talked a long while. He killed somebody in the first session. He talked a long while, even till the break of day. Now he preaches from midnight till sunrise. This is tough. He's determined. I, I have to believe it was a great study, but Paul does this himself without sleep. So it says he preached till the break of day. Then it says, so he departed. They were probably, okay, you can go now. Okay, bye. You know, they all went and crashed somewhere, I'm, sh I'm sure. You're talking about from evening till midnight, and then from midnight till the break of day. You're talking about at least a 12-hour sermon, and you kill somebody in the middle of it. So th this is a remarkable record that we have. And we don't know anything about Eutychus. You're going to meet him soon. You're going to meet him soon. The rapture's going to happen. You're going to meet Eutychus and you're going to say, oh, you're the one that he's going to go, yeah, yeah, I'm the one, yeah, I'm the one. He's going to be famous. Hell, I have a T-shirt. Yeah, I'm the one. Um, so it says then, and we, Luke, including himself, uh, well, they brought the young man alive. That's the that's a, a coup de grace to a great study. And were not, Paul, Luke says, not a little comforted. That means they were way comforted, much comforted, not a little comforted. And we went before to, to ship and sailed unto Azos, there intending to take in Paul, for he had appointed minding himself to go afoot. So they sail from Troas to Azos. You see it there. Paul decides to walk. It's 20 miles. Uh, they go from Troas to Azos. Paul, it seems like he just wants time by himself. He wants to talk to the Lord. He's going to tell the elders at, from Ephesus, look, I know bonds and affliction await me. I, I, don't, I, don't, you know, I, I don't know what to do with that, but none of these things move me. He's going to say, if I can just spend my life for Christ and finish the course that he has for me. So Paul, at this point, is musing. He's working through stuff. You know, and he just tells them, you guys go. And look, it was dangerous to travel alone in that world anywhere. But he kind of knows in his heart, no, I'm going to get to Jerusalem. Lord, you're going to sustain me. So he sends them ahead 20 miles. Look, he's walking. He's thinking. He's praying. He's sleepless. I'm not going to walk 20 miles after a 12-hour sermon, I'll tell you that. I, I do, you know. 
hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes here on Sunday morning, I go home and crash. I can't imagine 12 hours. But he goes afoot. He wanted to go alone. How remarkable. And when he met with us, Luke says us again, at Azos, then we took him in and came to Mytilene. So they take him in at Azos, and they sail from Azos down the Mytilene. That's 30 miles from Azos to Mytilene. Doesn't look like, you know, you, you try to realize these distances. That's 30 miles then to Mytilene. And then Luke says, and we, he's in the picture again, we sailed from there, and we came the next day over against Chios, and the next day we arrived at Samos, so you'll see Chios, Samos, you see it there, Chios, Samos, then they're going to end up down um, at Miletus. You're, you're talking about a hundred and some miles now by sea. It says, we arrived at Samos, and we tarried at Trogillium, and spent, and he said, then the next day we get to Miletus. That's 20 miles from Trogillium. You're talking about over 100 miles at sea again. For Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend time in Asia, for he hasted, if it were possible for him, to be at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And you're looking... You're looking at these pictures, you know, he's hitting these churches. You're talking, there's no worship, there's no PA system, you know, there's none, there's no bookstore, there's no coffee shop. Church then is Paul coming in and teaching, and everybody, they don't have their own Bibles. They're listening to him teach. <laughs> Goes on for hours. They take communion together, and then he moves on. It's just such an interesting picture. And he, he goes from church to church. You know, one of the, the scholars charted out, and they said Paul traveled 5,580 miles by land, 6,670 miles by sea. All, all, all together in, in the three missionary journeys, he traveled 12,350 miles in 16 years, and he evangelized over 1,500 square miles. Just imagine what he'd have done if he had a ticket on El Al. He'd have changed the whole world if there were airlines then. You know, but this, these are rough. You know, when he comes here to speak to these elders at Ephesus, at Miletus, he must, you know, he's got nicks on his head. He tells us there in Corinthians, I've been beat this many times. I've been stoned, all of these things. He's worn. I believe when he stands in Troas and they got all the lamps, all the lights going, he's, he just looks... He looks worn. He looks beat. You know, there's scars. He's been beaten. He's, he's, he's going through all these things, and yet he's there. He says he's serving the Lord. You know, I mean, Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He tells us in 2 Corinthians, he's been caught up to the third heavens. That'll kind of ruin you for this world. He's, he's killed, I believe, killed at, at Lystra, and, and they pray for him, and God raises him up. He goes back in the city again. He doesn't say, let's get out of here. They almost killed me. He goes in, let's finish it, will you? You know, let's get this over with. And, and just what a remarkable man. They say that he was short. He was frail. And you just look at this and everything he's gone through. It says he came to Miletus then, for Paul determined he wanted to sail by Ephesus, where he had been for three years because he didn't want to spend time in Asia. He knew if he went there to the church in Ephesus, everybody would grab him. He'd be there for a while. He didn't want to do that at this point in time because he, was, he didn't want to spend time in Asia because he was hurrying. He hasted, if it were possible for him, to be at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Verse 17 says, And from Miletus... He sent to Ephesus, now Ephesus 30 miles north of Miletus, Overland. He sent to Ephesus and he called for the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, You know, from the first day that I came into Asia, when I first came, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons. You know, you guys 
who I am when I came here. This is not the church, which was a great church then by then in Ephesus. This is the, the leadership. He calls 30 miles to the south and he's there on the beach at Miletus with them. And he says, you guys know who I am. You know the way I've lived. You know, you know, he was a tent maker. You know, he served in the city. He did these different things to sustain himself. He refused to be a burden to anyone. And he says, all of that, he says, serving the Lord with all humility of mind. Notice, look, with many tears. This is the great apostle. With many tears. He's going to say further on in the chapter, you know, that I, you know, I, I cease not to warn you, you know, for three years with, with tears that after my departure, this is going to take place. He says, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, with many tears, temptations are trials which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. You know, this is constantly dogged me, the, these Judaizers, and where I've gone. And he says, you, you know, he's, he knows he's seeing them for the last time, these elders from Ephesus. He's seeing them for the last time. He loved this church. He has spent more time in Ephesus than anywhere else. You know, after he leaves, it seems that at the Ephesian church will go to Timothy, and Timothy is there for a number of years, and then it seems that he's martyred in the streets. Timothy. And church fathers tell us all kinds of miracles were happening through the ministry of Timothy. And John the Apostle then ends up there for almost 30 years. Church tradition says Mary, the mother of our Lord, came with John to Ephesus where she died. And John's there almost 30 years, and then he gets taken to Patmos, and again, amazing that uh, the Lord challenges the church at Ephesus. You've left your first love. John's thinking, well, I've been there 30 years. And, you know, this is your diagnosis of the ministry I was involved in, you know. So it says, I was with you guys. I set this example, he said, in all seasons. You know, it just wasn't on and off. Serving the Lord with all humility of mind, with many tears, and trials which befell me by lying in wait of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you. It's very interesting. Dr. Luke uses a specific phrase here, kept back. It was a medical term, and it was used in regards to keeping back food from those that were sick. Because, you know, the, the medical world then thought some people will get better if they fast. Don't feed them starve them for a little bit. And Paul says here, I didn't hold back any of your food. I didn't, Luke, Luke writes it and says, he didn't withhold anything from the patients. You know, how I kept back nothing. He fed them, he took care of them. That was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you. Notice he did both these things. He demonstrated it and he taught it. He showed it to them, the gospel, and he taught it to them. So important. I have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. The house church is no doubt spread all across Ephesus. Publicly, they had a large meeting place, no doubt, where they were meeting, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks what his testimony was, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And the letter he writes to these Ephesians that, that uh, Tychicus will bring to them, I mean, you read that epistle, he takes them up into the heights in the first three chapters. It's remarkable what he has to say to these Ephesians because he had been with them for three years. The doctrinal things he brings to them in those first three chapters. And then as we get to the last three, he talks to them about, you know, it's, it's seated in heavenly, heavenly places. Then this is how you should walk. And then finally sit, walk, stand. Then finally stand against the evil one because of all the weird spiritual warfare in Ephesus. But he's meeting now with these leaders. And we listen to him talking to them. His heart was so woven with them, had been there so long, showed them, taught them publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, 
central to his message, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Those two things, repentance towards God and faith, are joined by a single article, and it means they're part of one another. They're two sides of the same coin. He, he, he says, you know, what I came for three years, what I wanted to get across to you, what I taught you, is he says, number one, repentance. So important. Repentance toward God. And faith towards our Lord, Jesus Christ. And he said, I, I'm serving. Look, we live in a culture now <clears throat> that is very much focused on your rights, your children's rights in elementary school. Your rights to be what you want, drink what you want, smoke what you want, express yourself sexually the way you want. Anybody who messes with you or tries to cramp your style is narrow-minded, they're a terrorist. Look, Christianity in the beginning was recognizing the sovereignty of God, and Christians put their life in his hands. He was Lord. You can't say Lord unless you're a servant. And Paul talks about that here. You know, Jesus Christ says, when the Son of Man comes, we find the, definite article, we find the faith upon the earth. When he returns, is there going to be a legitimate Christianity? And I think we, we just, you know, we, we need to come back. Or he's, we, of course, we want him to be our savior. We want fire insurance. But do we want him to be our Lord? Do we really believe if we relinquish the steering wheel, if we relinquish the rights we think we've had to our lives for so many years and say, all right, Lord, you make the call. I'm reading your word so I can live by it. I, I want it to be, you know, the steering wheel in my life. I, I want you. And Paul says for three years, you, you know that I, that I showed you, I taught you, I didn't hold back a single thing that was profitable to you. And what I got across to you was repentance towards God and then faith toward Jesus Christ. Those are two sides of the same coin. You, you, if you have repentance towards God, then you exercise faith to Christ. You can't have faith towards Christ if you don't have repentance first. Repentance, metanoia, change the mind. Your life's been going in one way. It's been a disaster forever. Now turn around and come back to Christ. Repentance and then faith towards Jesus Christ. It was so simple. The New Testament was forming Ecclesiology was forming, pneumatology was forming, eschatology was forming. But what these guys, what these guys did is they lived their lives for Christ. And I think, how often I fail at that? How often a little thing takes the wind out of my sails? A little thing. I think, I'm such a wimp. I look at this little, you know, weak frail guy. He was a monster. He was a giant. He says, testifying to the Jews, also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, and now, behold, I want you to think about this to these elders. Behold, I go bound, notice this, in the spirit, not by any human not by anything else, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that are going to befall me there. He has a sense of it. This is all I know, except that the Holy Ghost is witnessing to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide as await me. Bonds and afflictions are waiting. That's a little cheer-up sermon there, isn't it? You know, Paul says, now, and, and Paul, what's it matter? He's been caught up to the third heaven. You see, he just wants to finish his course. That's where we'll be next week in verse 24, if the Lord tarries. You, you just think this guy, he's meeting with these men. He loves them. He's worked with them for three years. They're face-to-face. -face. We're going to hear they fall down together and fall on each other's neck, and they, they embrace, and they weep over one another. And uh, Paul, looking at their faces, he probably knew some of them as his spiritual kids. They had been converted under his ministry. And, 
and to look at their faces and then say, look, I've held back nothing. I want you to know that. And you, you know that about me, how I've lived. And I brought to you the truth of repentance towards God and faith towards Jesus Christ. That was the spearhead of all that I did. And now, understand, I, I need to get there by Pentecost, but I'm going. There's such an unction. I'm bound in the spirit to get to Jerusalem. All I know is bonds and afflictions are waiting me. I, there's not going to be anything easy about it. I know that. But it's my Lord and Savior who's driving me by his spirit. I know that I have to go there. I go, I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, only knowing that the Holy Spirit is telling me there's bonds and their afflictions abide me. I think, Lord, if you were telling me, I want you to go here, and bonds and afflictions are waiting you, you know. That's why God, you know, picked Paul instead of us, you know. Uh, you know, what, what is it when you think, Lord, is, is, and all of us will get in a situation where to some degree we know this is going to be tough. My flesh is not going to like this. Lord, you're challenging me. Are you really my Lord or are you just my Savior? And I believe in your wisdom. I don't understand because this seems painful. It seems difficult. But I know you love me and you would never let this happen to me unless it was in your plan. And I know this is all about that one step to the other side. Paul said the Ephesians walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. You know, we spend a short time in this world. Part of our vocation is to step through the veil into eternity, into glory. That's part of our vocation. And, and Paul will tell this church in Ephesus, walk worthy of the vocation you have. Um, so we're at an interesting time. God's chosen us to be, I believe, the last generation. You know, we're the, uh, the anchor man running in the, the race. The batons have passed to us, and uh, we run the last lap. And I have nothing to put on you. I'm not preaching the choir. I'm my own heart. I'm thinking, Lord, please, let me run this last lap with everything I've got left. Don't let me blow it because I could do something stupid. Billy Graham said, Lord, keep me because I can destroy in 15 minutes what you took 40 years to build, you know. And, and we all have that potential. So I'm thinking, Lord, all the crowns will be thrown at your feet. All the glory is yours. None of this that's happened has anything to do with me anyhow. So please, I'm your son, your pastor, you know. He didn't hire me. He gave birth to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm a pastor. That don't mean nothing in heaven. As soon as I get there, there ain't no pastors in heaven. But one, I'll have to be a worship leader again when I get there, which is fine with me. Uh, but I'll be unemployed as soon as I step across. Uh, the higher thing is I'm his son. He didn't hire me. I'm not an employee. He gave birth to me. He's my father. And he paid an incredible price to make me his own, the blood of his own dear son. So let's run the last lap with everything we got. If you mess up, you should have another Christian you go to and say, man, I messed up. Will you, play, will you pray for me? You know, accountability is a, is a good thing done the right way. Uh, you should be praying, you know, God to fill you afresh with the Holy Spirit in these days we're living in. Amen. Uh, if you don't need it, please pray for me. I need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. And I think God's called us to such an hour as this. Just think of where we are. Think of what's going on around us in the world. We're going to get to see this. We're going to be get, get to be part of it. We're, we're the generation that's going to get raptured. You know, for eternity. We'll say, oh, yeah, I was, I was, yeah, I was there. You know, wow, what was that like? Psh, twinkling of an eye. It's hard to remember. It wasn't so fast, you know. Just, uh, but that's where we are. We're, we're living on the edge. If it's 20 years from now, 50 years, we're living on the edge. We're closer to it than any generation of the church that's ever lived. Let's stand. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for these things. Lord, there's so much here. It's so full, Lord. And we, Lord, there's some of it, it seems humorous, Lord, and some of it very sobering, Lord. Some of it, we can't imagine, Lord, the heartache of, of parting ways and knowing you're not going to see somebody you love again in this world. Lord, the challenges, death threats, imprisonment, Lord, we 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 go through these verses, Lord. And, and yet there's a historical reality here. There are future promises. There are lessons for us here 2,000 years later, Lord. We believe that's why you put Luke's quill to the page and put your inerrant and inspired word before us tonight. So, Lord, give us our portion. You know each of us individually, Lord. Some of us need to be challenged. Some of us need to be encouraged. Some of us need to be healed, Lord. Some of us need to be chastened, Lord. Some of us need clear vision. Some of us need to rest. Lord, you know each of us. We commit ourselves, Lord Jesus, afresh to you tonight. And we trust you, Lord. And we trust that we're praying according to your will when we ask these things. Lord Jesus, we pray in your name and for your glory. Amen.